Okay, um, I believe it's time to get started. Uh, I'm very happy and honored to welcome everybody to the Lunar and Planetary Lab um, to be hosting this uh, award ceremony and lecture and um, reception afterwards uh, yet again. We're very happy to, to have this award here. Uh, I'm the uh, Assistant Department Head here at LPL in the Department of Planetary Sciences, and I would like to hand the microphone over to Joaquin Ruiz now, our Dean of the College of Science. Well, I'm welcoming everybody twice. Anyway, welcome, and Mimi, thank you so much. I, I've had the pleasure of, of welcoming many of you now for the many years that this award has been uh, given out. And I think it's sort of fitting. What I, the more I think about it, um, what your dad was about actually was creating traditions and creating communities. And he, for all of you that don't know this, uh, Professor Blitzer, uh, started the PhD program in the physics department. There's a tradition and uh, there's a community building event. And these traditions, which sadly I don't think we have enough of at the University of Arizona, where we, where we honor those that came before us and what they actually represented for us. Um, it's wonderful that families like your family have put the funds in there to make it happen. So, uh, I thank you again for doing this. I think that uh, if I was looking at the list of the recipients, and I think it's a wonderful list. It's a list that uh, would make, I think, Professor Blitzer proud, yeah? And today we continue with the same, uh, with the same issues, right? We're gonna ha hear from one of our best faculty, one that represents what Professor Blitzer was all about. And importantly, uh, as this I remember when I went to the first of these, the room didn't have as many people. So it's doing what it's supposed to do, and people are coming to listen to this thing as an event uh, that represents one of our, that's, that's honoring one of our finest. So thank you for doing this for us, and congratulations. So I'm Buell Januzzi. I have the honor of being head of the astronomy department, Yancey's department. What really impresses me about Yancey is that he is an example to all of our current students and all of our current faculty. He's a product of the U of A. He's a product of the kind of teaching that Professor Blitzer wanted to inspire, getting students involved in research early on. Yancey did work with Chris Walker, one of our faculty members, while he was here. He was a triple major. He was a graduate of the Honors College. And he took all of that wonderful opportunity and excelled, winning prestigious fellowships in our field, including the Bart Bach uh, postdoctoral fellowship here at the University of Arizona. And he's a real rarity. He's an undergraduate that has ended up being a faculty member at his original institution. And now he is building that wonderful, passing on that wonderful tradition that he got from his faculty experience, his undergraduate experience here to his students now. He's engaged with our astronomy club, He's managing our undergraduate program. And in all these activities, he is giving his students an opportunity to explore their passions and excel. And I like to think that the department will live up to his example as we continue to grow and develop and provide such opportunities to our undergraduates. So I want to thank the Blitzers for enabling us to have opportunities to recognize faculty like Yancey Shirley. And now I want to introduce Mimi and Eric. 
to present Yancey with his award. I think I'm going to let my nephew speak first. Hi, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Eric. I'm uh, Leon's grandson, the youngest one. And uh, all right, so a lot of uh, there's a lot of ups and downs to having a dad who's a lot older than me. My dad's 72, and uh, one of those downsides was not getting to know my grandfather as well as I could have when he was alive. And um, something this award has done, which I'm just sort of realizing more and more, is that I've learned tons about my grandfather. Um, and from everything I've heard about Yancey, it seems like he's a great winner for this award. And uh, just to uh, make it sweeter, he's wearing a desert tie, which my grandfather was known for wearing. Thank you. Eric is indeed the youngest of four grandsons. He's my brother's youngest. Um, and I'll just wait till I call my brother and say that you announced his age here. And to find it as old, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. He's my older brother. Um, I, I am thrilled to be here. Every year, this is is a really wonderful experience for me, my brother, and our whole family. Um, I think the introduction that was given to about Dr. Shirley matches my father and what he would want in something like this. So my father was also um, an undergraduate alum here in the 1930s and uh, came back after he got his PhD. Um, and indeed, as it says in the program, he was the youngest full professor here. That's because when he got the first physics department research grant, they didn't know what to do, and certainly they didn't have money to promote financially, so they made him a full professor. Uh, <laughs> you still do that. Um, but I think, you know, for those of you here who knew him, um, he was devoted uh, to teaching. Uh, yes, he, had re he did a lot of research. Um, yes, he got grants. Yes, he did the academic stuff, but he realized, and I think that Yancey is a good example of this as well, that what's most important is for us to, if we're in academics, uh, to pass it on, um, to teach our students and to see their successes. Um, and that's part of us, and that's exactly what we were supposed to do. So Charlie and I made this uh, very specific that this would be an award um, for excellence in teaching. Uh, not excellence in physics, not excellence in astronomy, but excellence in teaching and passing on that knowledge base. And we're thrilled uh, to present this award to you. So uh, we have a, a small token here. Eric, if you could um, give Dr. Shirley both uh, a small plaque and a small token for um, Thank you very this much. honor. Yeah. And we're looking forward to your lecture. Thank you. Should I start? All right. <laughs> so, well, thank you all for coming. And I'd really like to thank the Blitzer family for this award. Uh, there's a few people I would like to also thank, especially when I was an undergraduate here. One of them is Ray White, who this polo tie is actually in honor of. And I'm glad that it also Leo wore one as well. Uh, I always remember Ray wearing. He was my undergraduate advisor in the astronomy department and really got me started off in the right direction. And a couple other people. Uh, something that's very important to me when I came back as a faculty member is undergraduate research. And two people that really got me started off on the right foot here at U of A was Steve Larson here at LPL, who I worked with as a NASA Space Grant student in my first two years, and Chris and Connie Walker over in Stewart Observatory, whose lab that I, uh, I worked in uh, my junior year through my senior year. 
And Chris is who got me started in radio astronomy, and you can see that it's stuck, because that's what I'm going to be talking a lot about today. So what I'd like to do today is to talk about really the earliest phases of star formation and how we're starting to discover these regions all the way across the Milky Way galaxy. So I'm going to talk about dense starless cores, and I'm going to try to explain to you what these objects are and why I find them so fascinating, why we want to understand the properties of these particular objects. Of course, this thing's deciding not to work when it's uh, needed. So let's give it one quick reset here, and hopefully it'll wake up. Or not. Okay. I can walk back and forth, so that'll work too. I'll give it one more shot on a reset here. Of course, everything works a half an hour ago, right? So, perfectly. Well, I can come back forward if we need to, so. Hey, hey, all right. So, those of you that have had the, the great ability to live here in Arizona for many years, I'm sure have gone out on a clear summer night out in the desert, and you've been able to see the Milky Way. And when you look at the Milky Way, one of the first things you notice is that it's not a continuous stream of stars. But along here are all these little dark patches that break up as a dark lane across the middle part of the Milky Way. And so for a long time, people wondered what these objects are. And this is part of what I'm going to talk about today, is these regions in the Milky Way, the dark stuff that doesn't look like much of anything, but which I think is some of the most fascinating and most interesting parts of our galaxy. So what are these objects, these dark, obscuring objects? Well, for a long time, people thought that they were actually vacancies or voids in the Milky Way, places where there were no stars. And it wasn't really until the early photographic astronomy work of E.E. E. Barnard, as late as 1907, that this idea started to really be overturned. So this is a picture, photographic plate. This was state of the art in January of 1907, uh, taken towards one of these dark patches that's in the direction of the constellation Taurus. And so here you can see this. He even labels it vacancy and nebula. Nebula is this little fuzzy patch that's right up here, but the rest of this is still the vacancy in Taurus. And this was, I want to point out, a five-hour long photographic exposure that was taken back in 1907. And Barnard had this quote in a paper that he published in an astronomical journal. says, I've been slow in accepting the idea of an obscuring body to account for these vacancies. Yet this particular case almost forces the idea upon one as fact. There are portions of this apparent vacancy that are certainly darker than the adjacent sky. And it was really E.E. E. Barnard's work is the one that led us to realize that these were obscuring clouds of material, clouds of dust and gas in the Milky Way galaxy. If only E.E. E. Barnard had had a DSLR camera, it might have been quite a bit more obvious. So this is actually a much shorter exposure with a modern digital camera today of that exact same filament and the nebulosity up here in three colors. Uh, so this is a beautiful filament that spans a few degrees on the sky in the central part of the Taurus molecular cloud. So what are these regions really? Well, today we know them as the sites where stars and planets are born in the Milky Way galaxy. These dark clouds are called molecular clouds, and they're really the sites of star formation. And this material that makes up the clouds is really the raw material out of which stars and planets form today within our Milky Way galaxy. Well, one of the interesting features about them is you might ask, well, what actually makes them dark? Why, when we look at visible wavelengths towards these regions, do we actually see them as dark, obscuring patches? Well, the answer is the material that makes them up. 
They're made up of dust. And this is not dust that is sort of similar to what you think of as household dust. It's much smaller. It's dust grains that are made out of materials like silicates, the main stuff that makes up most of the rocks in the Earth's mantle, uh, graphitic materials, carbonaceous materials. And they have sizes that range all the way from just a few atoms up to literally millions and billions of atoms, things that have grains of dust grains that are the size of the wavelengths of light that our eyes are sensitive to. And that's very, very important. Because the dust grains get that big in the interstellar medium, they do a very, very efficient job of absorbing and scattering that optical light. And here, this is another region of Taurus. This is the famous Pleiades. If you take a nice optical photograph here, and again, this is in multiple colors, not just blue, you'll notice that there's these clouds of dusty material around the Pleiades stars. And this dust is doing an effective job of scattering the short wavelength blue light. And that's why this light on the clouds appears blue coming from these stars here. We can really see a great example of this when we look at one of these really dense regions, a region which is going to form a star at some point in the future. So this is what we call a dense core. This object here, this obscuring cloud, has about two times the mass of the sun of material that's in this cloud. And when you look at optical wavelengths at this cloud, which happens to be in the direction of Ophiuchus in our sky, you notice that you really can't see anything in the center of this cloud. So if you really wanted to study the properties of these objects and understand what's going on down in the middle of one of these things, that actually forming a star in a solar system, optical wavelengths is not, are not the way to study these particular objects. So what we need to do is we need to find wavelengths of light that can get past the dust grains that are doing the obscuring within this cloud. So what we can do is we can go to longer wavelengths. So for instance, if you go to wavelengths in the infrared, which are longer than what our eye can see, you can actually see that this really is an obscuring patch here. And the light from the background stars at now these longer infrared wavelengths are starting to pass through the cloud. And we can start to see through the cloud at this longer wavelength. So that's one way that we can probe into these clouds. Now it turns out not all of these dense regions within the molecular clouds we can even probe at infrared wavelengths. Some of them are so dense that they're still opaque even at those infrared wavelengths. And so we could even go to longer wavelengths to do that. But there's one fact here that really helps us out. And this is something that I'm going to show you today that we greatly exploit to study these regions within our galaxy. Because these dust grains are absorbing the optical light, and that's what's causing them to be opaque. They're absorbing that radiation that's coming from the background stars. That means the dust grains heat up a little bit. They don't heat up very much. In a cloud like this, they're only about minus 450 degrees Fahrenheit, only about 10 degrees above absolute zero. But any large object that has a temperature associated with it gives off light. It glows. Now, we're used to the sun glowing. And if you could take an infrared camera and look at all of us in this room, you would see that we're giving off light. It just happens to be in the infrared because of our temperature. These really cold dust grains are also glowing in space. But they're so cold that they're giving off most of their light way out at long wavelengths in the radio part of the spectrum. So if you take a radio telescope and you look at wavelengths around one millimeter in wavelength, then you could actually see all of the dust grains in this region actually glowing throughout the cloud. And this is a way that we can now study the entire structure of these regions. The other important fact about this kind of emission, this radio emission we see from the dust grains, is that when a dust grain manages to finally make one of these photons that's so long in wavelength, there's essentially zero chance that that photon will be absorbed or scattered by another dust grains. Because the dust grains generally 
don't get big enough to absorb and scatter these very, very long wavelengths. So it means we can also probe the entire structure from front to back all the way through these clouds. So these kind of images right here, this is exactly what I did for my PhD thesis. When I graduated here from University of Arizona in 1997, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. And that was kind of a remarkable year to start a thesis on this particular topic. Because what happened was a technical, uh, technological revolution was going on in millimeter astronomy. And the revolution was that the detectors that we had that could make images like this were only single pixel. That meant there was one detector in the focal plane of the telescope. And if you wanted to make a map like this, you actually needed to map out each position at a time on the sky. And it was extremely slow and extremely painful. And so the first year I was in graduate school, the first camera got commissioned that had, in gasp, hold your breath, 37 pixels in the focal plane. And it was a factor of 10,000 times faster than the previous generation single pixel camera. And so the first, for the first time, we could actually think of mapping regions like this and studying them in structure. And that's what I did for my thesis. I mapped several nearby dense regions like this and studied their structure for my PhD thesis. Well, the next revolution that came really came in the early 2000s. And it's another Arizona connection, actually. So finally, in the mid-2000s, people started building cameras that could work at these long wavelengths, like one millimeter, that had over 100 pixels in the focal plane. This is BoloCam. And it was designed and built by a former graduate student here at the University of Arizona, Jason Glenn, who I got to know as an undergraduate because when I was working in Chris Walker's lab, Jason was also a graduate student, finishing his PhD the same year that I graduated from Arizona as an undergraduate. Jason went off and is a professor now at the University of Colorado, and he built BoloCam. And because this camera is now so sensitive and so big, for the first time, you could actually start thinking about mapping very large areas of the sky instead of just very targeted small maps of small regions. And so you could think about mapping the entire galaxy with a camera like this. So where BoloCam actually went is it went to a place here on top of a mountain at almost 14,000 feet in Hawaii, in Mauna Kea. You have to get to these very, very high altitudes because it turns out water vapor in our Earth's atmosphere does a pretty reasonable job of absorbing at one millimeter. And so if you can get above most of the Earth's water vapor in the atmosphere, you can see through the atmosphere at one millimeter in wavelength very effectively. Uh, you also needed some intrepid astronomers. It looks like our clicker has stopped again, unfortunately. And so there was a team of people that went up and actually did the observations uh, with BOLACAM. I was part of that team and also did other observations at this telescope. This was the Caltech 7mm Observatory. It's a 10 meter radio telescope that works very efficiently at millimeter and submillimeter wavelengths. And so started a survey, basically, of the entire galactic plane. So taking what we know about the Milky Way galaxy, if you could zoom out of our galaxy and look on it from the face down on our galaxy, here's our sun right here. This is the galactic center right up there. So about 28,000 light years away in this direction is the center of our galaxy. Here's our sun out here in sort of a little bit of a minor spiral arm. To the best of our knowledge, we think the Milky Way is mostly dominated by two main spiral arms with two other more minor spiral arms uh, that are also in the structure here. Um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to now map the plane of our galaxy with this new camera and try to study star formation regions throughout the Milky Way galaxy. So we picked, again, this region that is basically in the sort of top left part of the Milky Way. So this part right in here. So almost into the direction of the galactic center. 
and all this direction over here into the direction of Cygnus, if you're familiar with the directions on the sky. So this is in the direction of Sagittarius over towards Cygnus. So it's the part that you can essentially see from the northern hemisphere with a telescope like uh, the CSO in Mauna Kea. What's really unique about this kind of emission that's coming from the dust at one millimeter is that you can see star forming regions all the way out in these outer arms all the way across the Milky Way galaxy. You're actually very sensitive to the amount of material that you can see within our galaxy. So here's what we see. So you remember the little globule that I showed you a few minutes ago and we stepped through at three different wavelengths? Here's those same three wavelengths here. On the bottom is what you see in optical light. This is a section of the Milky Way galaxy. You see all these dark patches. These are the obscuring molecular clouds. We want to study what's inside of these and things that are behind them. And because these are so opaque, at optical wavelengths, we can't see very far into the galaxy. We can definitely not see all the way across. This light gets blocked by all this obscuring cloud. As you go to the infrared, you can even see what I was saying before. Even though we've gone to longer wavelengths, we can see through some of this material, but not all of it. There's still regions that are so dense that they are still opaque and make clouds at infrared wavelengths. But when you go to the millimeter, now we can see the emission all the way across the Milky Way galaxy from all of these dust grains that are glowing. And so we established and did the first survey of the Milky Way galaxy at these long millimeter wavelengths, discovering in this part of the galaxy that we looked at over 4,000 new sites of star formation and future sites of star formation in these regions. So we have a little bit of terminology in this game. It's not real sophisticated terminology. We have clouds on the big scale. And then within those clouds, there are denser regions. We call those clumps. This is real sophisticated high-level astrophysics here, OK? So these are examples of clumps. We break clumps up into two main categories. If they have young protostars that are actively forming, so these are like very young solar systems that are still accreting material and still very deeply embedded within their natal clump, we call those protostellar clumps. But if there's no evidence for star formation whatsoever, we call those things starless clumps. Clumps are typically a few light years across. That's sort of the typical size of these things. So they're bigger than our solar system, including the Oort cloud. But within the clumps themselves will be these much denser concentrations that are the sites of individual or multiple star formation. That's what we call the dense cores themselves. So that example, that little kidney bean-shaped thing I showed you before was an example of a dense core within these larger clumps. So for the first time now, we've actually discovered thousands of, these, thousands of these objects. And we've discovered them from a blind galactic plane survey. And that's very important because studies in star formation have been very biased for the last 40 years. Where people have looked to study star formation, and especially this phase, the very earliest phase, before the stars have even formed, where the initial conditions of how stars and planets formation is actually set, People have looked in regions where stars are already forming and just kind of looked around those regions. And that's how they tried to identify these kinds of objects. What a blind galactic plane survey buys you is it allows you to find these objects in all different evolutionary phases. And they don't have to already be right next to where a bunch of stars are forming. You can find the youngest regions in the galaxy by doing this kind of survey. So that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to go and try and find this earliest, this starless phase. So the part I'm going to talk about now is actually work that's being currently done here at U of A by Brian Swoboda, who's a graduate student in the astronomy department. This is part of his PhD thesis. What Brian did was he took our galactic plane survey. 
He took all other known galactic plane surveys that had been done at optical, infrared wavelengths, very, very long radio wavelengths, anything that he could find that would indicate whether or not stars were already forming in these regions. And by doing that, he was able to identify a rather large population of starless clumps. These are regions where there is no star formation activity occurring yet. They're in the very initial stages of star formation. Here's a great example of one. Over here is our millimeter image from our survey. You can see it's not great resolution at our current survey resolution that we have. It's very, very pixelated here, but you can see the dust grains are glowing in this region. Over here in the infrared, you can see that this thing is very, very opaque and it's very dark. There's a dense core here. There's even these like little arms and filaments coming out of this particular core. There's five of them, so we call this one the starfish, this particular object. This is very massive. When you add up the total amount of material in this region, it comes out to about 800 times the mass of the sun. So this is not an object that's going to form one star. These are objects that are in the very initial stages of forming entire clusters of stars, many, many stars with a wide range of masses. And potentially, this could even form very, very massive stars within our galaxy. So what are these objects? For the first time, we've got real numbers, a large unbiased statistical survey we can actually learn something about the properties of this very, very earliest phase. So what about their lifetimes? So one of the things you can do is you can take the clumps in different evolutionary phases and you can count numbers. How many are in this phase versus how many are in this phase versus how many are in this phase? And you can take ratios of those. And if you have some estimate for the lifetime of one of those phases, then you can get an estimate of the lifetime for all of the phases. So here's what it is for this youngest phase, the starless clumps. This gray region here is our calculation, taking the ratio of numbers of objects at different masses. You notice that these are enormous masses. We're talking about clumps that contain 1,000, or even in the extreme cases, 10,000 times the mass of the sun. So these are really the precursors to entire clusters of stars forming. And the lifetime for these objects is very, very short. Just a few tens of thousands of years that these objects exist in this starless phase before some part of them collapses and start to form protostars. Now, if you extrapolate this line up back to lower masses down here on the other side of the diagram, you'll see that the typical lifetime that these clumps live actually goes all the way and approaches somewhat longer time, something on the order of a million years when you get down here in the range of a few hundred solar masses in terms of the clumps. So there's a wide range in age lifetimes. And because we had this survey, this is the first time we could ever do a plot like this to see how this lifetime might change versus some physical property, in this case, mass of the clumps. Well, it turns out the masses of the clumps was something that's really interesting. And there was one other really, really interesting result that came out of this survey. And that is this. If you take all the clumps which appear starless, have no evidence for star formation in them, and you plot a histogram of them. So that's what this gray curve is here. So this is how many clumps there are at different masses. So here's 100 times the mass of the sun. Here's 1,000 times the mass of the sun. The first thing you'll notice is there are almost no starless clumps above 10,000 solar masses. This very massive phase has an extremely short lifetime before something collapses and starts to form protostars. Down here in the bottom panel is the histogram of masses for objects that actually do have young stars already forming in them. And one of the things you'll notice is that these two distributions are offset. The sort of average mass between these is offset by a few hundred solar masses between the starless and the protostellar case. Now, that's a really interesting result. So what's going on here? 
So Brian very carefully went through several hypotheses in his paper to try to understand what could be happening in this particular situation. Could it have something to do with our ability to see protostars in different parts of the galaxy? Like, for instance, as we go farther away from us, it gets harder to see the protostars, so maybe we're overcounting starless objects. Turns out that can't completely explain this mass difference. And after we went through a range of possibilities, there was only a couple of possible hypotheses left, and I think this one is a really interesting one. There's the potential that in this very, very earliest phase that there's actually mass growth going on for the starless clumps. So what does that mean? So let me show you this little cartoon over here. Imagine this is the giant molecular cloud here, traced by this outline. And within it, there are these clumps that are a few light years across. They contain a lot of mass. They're on the order, you can see here, of several hundred times the mass of the sun. So they have a lot of gravity that can pull in the material from the surrounding cloud. And so in order to solely explain this difference, we would need a mass growth rate of on the order of a few hundred masses of the sun over the course of about a million years, if that was the sole explanation for this difference. So this is an interesting hypothesis. Nobody's really seen this before. And there's maybe statistical evidence we have here that this mass growth is going. But could we actually find real evidence, real kinematic evidence, that there's actually flows of material coming in onto these clumps? So that's the next thing I'd like to talk about. How in the world do you go about finding evidence for a hypothesis like this? Well, it turns out that within these molecular clouds, there's another constituent besides dust that can help us trace how things move within the clouds. So here's another example of one very, very famous cloud. This is Barnard 33. It's better known as the Horsehead Nebula in the Orion region, just off the left belt star. This little dark cloud hangs down. Here's an optical image of it. It turns out if you take a radio telescope and you tune up to exactly the correct wavelength, in this case, a little under one millimeter, about 0.87 of a millimeter, you can see the molecules glowing in this particular cloud. Now, how in the world does that work? How do the molecules actually glow in these regions? Well, it turns out that molecules rotate. So here's an example of carbon monoxide, carbon and oxygen, a very simple molecule, and it's rotating. But because of quantum mechanics, energy is quantized, and when you solve Schrodinger's equations for this system, you learn that the rotations themselves are actually quantized. Now, what in the world does that mean, that the rotations are quantized? What that effectively means is that the CO molecule can only rotate at very specific speeds. So it can only rotate at one speed, or another faster speed, or another even faster speed. Energy, energy difference between those two speeds. And that's exactly what we're doing here. We're mapping out that light being given off from carbon monoxide changing from rotating from one speed down to its next slower speed. And every single molecule essentially has a unique fingerprint, a unique set of wavelengths which it emits at where it's changing its rotational speeds. And so using that information, we can actually tune up to these specific wavelengths, and we can tell exactly what we're looking at within these clouds in terms of the molecules. If you take a radio telescope, and you look at the Orion Nebula, in a region right behind the Orion Nebula, and you spread out the light at radio wavelengths, you'll see something that looks like this. Every one of these spikes you see is due to a different molecule changing its speed of rotation and giving off light. And because we can make this stuff in the laboratory, we can assign to which molecules all these different spikes are coming from. 
This great big one here and this one here, these are all due to the water molecule. This is water actually in the gas phase in behind the Ryan Nebula. Sulfur dioxide, here's carbon monoxide. You even see co more complicated organic molecules, things like methylformate and methanol that are actually in the gas phase where these stars regions are actually forming. So this is really interesting. This allows us to actually study what makes up these clouds. But this still doesn't answer the question, how in the world do you use this information to actually trace how material is moving within the clouds? Well, there's one additional factor that we can use. And it's this little bit of physics. It's what's called the Doppler shift. Okay? So if you imagine we have our observer here, our radio telescope, and we have the molecules in one of these clouds, and the molecules are just moving around randomly. They have some velocity and their motions are just randomly. Just any object, any gas cloud, even something very cold at 10 degrees above absolute zero, the molecules will still be moving around randomly. When a molecule that is moving towards the observer emits its photon, because there's motion relative to the observer towards us, that wavelength of light will get compressed. And the wavelength will get shifted to the blue part of the spectrum, to shorter wavelengths. The molecules that are moving away from us in the cloud, the opposite happens. As the molecule is moving away from the observer, the wavelength of light gets expanded, and the wavelength goes and gets shifted to the red part of the spectrum. So when you look, if you could blow up those spectral lines that I showed you on the previous plot, you would see that they generally have a shape that sort of looks like this, that has some width to it. Instead of the radiation coming out at essentially one wavelength, it's coming out at a range of wavelengths, and that's because of the gas motions, just the random motions of the gas particles that are emitting that radiation. And they're all doing their own little Doppler shift, and all those Doppler shifts add up to give you a range of wavelengths here that the light comes out at. So how do we actually use this? This is for just random motions. You would get a shape like this. But if you actually have systematic motions, if, for instance, the entire gas cloud is collapsing in on itself, it will change the shape of this profile. And so that's what we want to look for, is a particular shape to this profile because of how the Doppler shift is working. So here's an example of exactly one of these systems. This is actually a paper that was published a couple years ago. This is by Nicholas Pareto and collaborators in Europe of a very massive region. So what's shown here in the background is an infrared image of one of these dense clumps. This clump is very massive. It contains several thousand times the mass of the sun. You can see it has even filamentary structure that connects back to the larger clump. Overlaid in white are observations of a molecule that is really great at tracing kinematic motions in these clouds. And you see this particular line shape that you see here in the spectral line. Instead of it being a perfect little bell-shaped curve, it's got a dip in it in the middle and one side of the line, in particular, the left side of the line, is much brighter than the right side of the line. It turns out that is exactly the signature that you would expect for a system that is collapsing. That is the kind of line profile that you would like to see in the light that's coming out at different wavelengths for this particular molecule. So this is a great example of a system where there's a large-scale flow of material coming in onto this clump that extends over the entire range of the clump, basically, and these filaments that you see here as well. It's a large flow. When this, these folks in the paper here calculated it, it was several hundred amounts of solar material coming in over the course of a million years. Well, if this was what all of our clumps are like, this would definitely explain those observations. But there's one problem. This particular object that was published is not starless. It's in a later phase. It actually already has 
several young protostars forming down in the middle of it. So it's not an exact analog of the kind of objects that we've discovered. So that leads to the question, are there any of these really starless, very young objects that might actually be collapsing? So we've actually been studying this. We've been following this up. This is a project that's being done here at U of A by the U of A Astronomy Club. So here you can see a group of the students up at the new 12-meter telescope, which is up on Kitt Peak. This telescope is great because it can observe at the wavelengths where you can observe these molecules in the cloud, and you can look exactly for this kind of line profile. So what I'm going to show you is really new. This is literally from two weekends ago, our observing. Do you remember the starfish? The example that I showed you of one of these starless clumps that was about 800 times the mass of the sun with these little filaments? When you go observe it with the 12-meter telescope, this is what the students saw. There's the dip. The left side of the line is brighter than the, the, than, the, than the right side of the line. This is a candidate for one of these collapsing systems, basically, a starless clump candidate. And it's real. We just discovered it two weeks ago. This is really very exciting as part of the survey that the Astronomy Club is doing. So this will be part of a paper that Brian Swoboda and Jenny Callahan, who is an undergraduate here majoring in astronomy and physics, and she'll be working on this partly for her senior thesis as well, her honors thesis here at Arizona. Well, we discovered this two weeks ago, and it turns out we've got some time coming on another radio telescope. And we found out yesterday that we're getting it tomorrow because it's dynamically scheduled. So we're going to have an answer for you. This was a single spectrum taken over the entire object. But the observations we're going to do tomorrow morning, I think starting, where's Brian, about 10 AM in the morning, right? 10 AM East Coast time, at least, on the 100-meter Green Bank Telescope will give us the resolution to actually see whether this structure is over the entire object and along the filaments, whether or not we're actually seeing a large-scale flow. So this is the 100-meter radio telescope. It's in Green Bank, West Virginia. To put this to scale, uh, the Washington Monument would fit about to here, okay, in this particular uh, picture. You could fit two full of U of A's football fields, end zone to end zone, side by side, within the dish. This thing is enormous, okay. If you're ever anywhere in sort of East Central West Virginia and you can make it to Green Bank, go check this out because it is a monster. And it's kind of an amazing sight to see in person, this telescope. So we should know. We'll know actually hopefully by about noon tomorrow whether or not this is really a large scale collapsing system. So what I'd like to finish with here is one last picture of the Milky Way. This is a great picture from a National Geographic photography contest uh, taken out in the Mojave Desert. And what I want to leave you with is every time that you now go up and look at the Milky Way, and you see these little dark patches, these molecular clouds, they're not vacancies, they're not voids, they're really the raw material out of which stars and planets are forming today. And by doing surveys at the radio now of this part of the Milky Way galaxy, we have now literally discovered thousands of current and future sites of star formation within these clouds and behind these clouds all the way through our galaxy. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's a great question. Depends, first of all, on how massive the star is that's forming. 
more massive stars than our sun form quicker than what it would take something like our sun to form. The very embedded phases, like where it's still really deep down in the core, before it blows away all the, the natal material that it's forming out of, that phase doesn't last too long. It's less than a million years, typically, before the object starts to emerge. And this is for something like our sun forming, basically. But that's still not the whole story. If you want to talk about how long it takes, for instance, the planets or the things to actually form, the disk of material that's actually around the star, that takes much longer to dissipate. In the case of solar mass stars, it's several million years for that material to essentially dissipate away. So it's a relatively long process. Now, very, very massive stars, stars that are like 20, 50 times the mass of the sun, that star formation process takes place the whole thing in less than a million years. And the really massive stars, they will blow up in only a few million years is how long they'll actually, their whole lifetime, they will live. Yeah. Why? Why? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so they run out of nuclear fuel at the center. So all the stars that you essentially see in the sky are basically uh, nuclear generators doing fusion reactions is what you're seeing. And so eventually, you know, stars go through different phases depending on how massive they are. Uh, eventually our sun, in about five billion years, is going to start running out of helium in its core. It's taking helium and converting it, uh, sorry, taking hydrogen and converting it into helium. So it's going to run out of the hydrogen that's in its core. Uh, and then eventually it'll turn into another kind of star, basically, as, that, as, that, as it runs out of that nuclear fuel. More massive stars, so our sun will actually be able to burn he helium as well to go on to another phase. We'll turn helium into carbon. Uh, even more massive stars can turn carbon into other elements. Uh, and eventually you can burn all the way up to, in the periodic table, iron, which is a very tightly bound nucleus. And it takes more energy to actually shove iron nuclei together than what you would get out from fusion. So the process stops there. And so when you get to very massive stars where they would burn all the way essentially up to iron, they actually start losing energy when they try to burn iron. And it's a bad deal. Things come down and collapse, and there's an explosion. And so you have a giant, what's called a supernova, basically, a big explosion at the end of that process. Yeah? So yeah, this cool idea showed us that by looking at these uh, molecules with carbon in them, that you can see signs of infall. I'm wondering if you look at the different rare isotopes of carbon, or of oxygen for that matter, did you get any additional information? Yeah, you do. So. Um, one of the details about how this works, in order to make this particular shape that we're seeing with the dip and the left side brighter than the right side, you have to have enough material within, the, within that clump, so enough of this particular molecule, that the molecules on one part of the cloud can absorb the radiation coming from another part of the cloud. So you have to have enough of that material so that you can absorb that light. That's part of what makes the dip right where it is. Okay? So if you go to a rare isotope, so for instance, the molecule that we're using the molecule is called HCO+. The fancy chemical name is oxymethelium for the chemi chemistry types in the audience. It's a very rare ion that would not exist in our Earth's atmosphere other than just for a minute fraction of a second because it would react with something and fall apart. But in the low densities in space, you can build up this molecule in quite a bit of abundance and you can actually observe it changing its rotational speeds and giving off light with a radio telescope. It comes from carbon monoxide. It has CO in its chemical formula that comes from that. Now, the normal HCO plus molecule, the normal carbon in that is carbon-12. The first rare isotope of carbon is carbon-13. It's down in abundance in these regions by about a factor of 50. So you would expect it to be about 50 times less H13CO plus as there is HCO plus. So what that means is 
that quality where the molecules are, there's enough of it along the line of sight to absorb and make that special profile that we're looking for, that is lost. When you go to the H13CO plus, there's less material. It can't effectively absorb the light anymore, and you can see all the way through the cloud. We actually did that observation exactly. So the same day that we got this profile, at the very end of the shift, we tuned up to the line for the H13CO plus, and guess what? It peaks right where you'd expect it, right in the dip. So that's clearly a signature. It's not two separate clouds that are moving like this along our line of sight. It's actually one cloud with some sort of compressive motions that's making that profile. By the way, one thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about that, that kind of work with those profiles, that was actually pioneered a lot of that here by Chris Walker, uh, who I worked with as an undergrad. That was part of his PhD thesis back in the mid-1980s here at U of A, was studying those kinds of profiles in detail and what that tells us about how these regions are collapsing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. They're very different from the stars that are forming today. And so very early in the universe, when you start to get regions that are starting to gravitationally collapse and the densities are getting high enough that you can start thinking about forming stars, what has to happen in those regions is as the gas clouds are condensing, they actually need to cool off. All right, They need to radiate energy away very efficiently. In the early universe, there was not all of the full periodic table, essentially, that we have today. There was only some very simple elements, hydrogen, helium, a little bit of lithium. And it wasn't until the first stars formed that we started to get the rest of the periodic table that would be built up by nuclear fusion processes. And so uh, in those very, very first stars, it's really hard for their gas clouds to actually cool. The clouds that I'm showing you today, the starting point is really, really cold. All these molecules and all these things that can be made of them and all the dust that's in there, it can radiate all kinds of energy away and they can get very cold right before the star formation process starts. But the very first generation of stars could not do that. They didn't have a very effective way of cooling. So their clouds had to be much more massive, thousands of solar masses perhaps, right? And they would form very, very massive stars that would have very short lifetimes and then if they exploded, would spew that material out, the new material that they've made, the other heavier elements out into the universe. That's an area of very, very active research that people that are building telescopes like the, the 25 meter Giant Magellan Telescope down in Chile, those are the kinds of things that people want to look for at high redshift with telescopes like that. The James Webb Space Telescope that's going to launch in 2018, we'll be trying to look for various signatures of those first generations of stars very early in the, in the history of the universe. Yeah, George. So if your clouds collapse in a million years, yeah. why are there any left? Why are we still forming? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so why is there any gas left, basically, in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, it turns out our Milky Way galaxy has a star formation history over its lifetime. It's been forming stars in, a, in an earlier epoch. It was forming at a higher rate than it is now. Still forming them today at about a rate of about one solar mass of material is getting converted into stars per year within our Milky Way galaxy, still continuing. Well, there's an entire cycle of material in the interstellar medium. And galaxies, like our Milky Way galaxy, are also not closed boxes. So those are two parts to what your answer is. So stars that formed in earlier generations that maybe have evolved quickly and gone through their lifetime, some of that material gets spewed back out into the galaxy, and that material can get reincorporated back into molecular clouds and collapse and form new stars. Okay? We see the evidence of that. The materials that we see in the atmosphere of our sun here on the Earth 
it's all stuff that was once in stars for the most part, except for maybe the hydrogen, right? But so, some of the hydrogen, but the, it was mostly in stars at some point during its life. Also, the Milky Way galaxy, the amount of gas that's in the Milky Way has not stayed constant over the history of the universe. The Milky Way galaxy has cannibalized, gobbled up material, other smaller galaxies that's come in. There's always been stuff coming in, and so the net amount of material that's coming in the Milky Way galaxy has also increased over time. So combination of those factors, material from the old stars gets spewed back out. There's still uh, material coming into the galaxy. We're still able to form stars, and the process is not over yet in the Milky Way galaxy. In fact, it's going to get really interesting in about three and a half to four billion years because it looks like the other nearest big spiral galaxy to the Milky Way, the Andromeda galaxy, is on what looks like a collision course to us. And we know from looking at other galaxies where the galaxies themselves are colliding, when they collide, the distance between the stars is so vast that when two galaxies with, say, 100 billion stars each collide, the stars never collide. They, don't, they pass by each other. They feel each other's gravity, but they don't actually physically hit each other. That's a very, very extremely rare event. But all this gas that's in the galaxies that gas will collide and condense and conform more molecular clouds. And when two galaxies collide, we actually call it a starburst. That's the astronomical name for these systems. And you can get a burst in the rate of star formation. You can start forming stars instead of like the Milky Way today, which is about one times the mass of the sun per year. You can form stars at 100, or even in the most extreme cases, up to almost 1,000 times of the masses of the sun forming per year. And in about three and a half to four billion years, the Milky Way is going to go through one of those phases. Um, our sun will be getting pretty close to the end of its lifetime, so I don't think we should probably be around here uh, on this particular rock by then, but uh, it'll be an interesting time for sure in the Milky Way. Yeah? Do you have a sense of how strongly your clumps prefer to be in the spiral Oh, yeah, that's a great question, and the answer is really, really strongly. The, when it's, now, we have quite a bit of distance uncertainty and how far away these clumps are, and that's actually a part of the story which we've worked on very hard here in Arizona is figuring out how far away these objects actually are. That's a pretty complicated story to actually to tell, to figure that out, how that actually works. So we have a bit of uncertainty in how far away these things are. By the way, that starfish patterned object that I showed you a couple times, that's about 15,000 light years away. And the uncertainty on that is a couple thousand light years, okay, in terms of the actual distance. But given that sort of uncertainty, yes, the vast majority of clumps, when you plot them down on a face-on view of the galaxy, the vast majority of them fall on the spiral arms. As you get farther away, there does quite to be quite a bit more uncertainty, and you get things that appear to be in the gap, but I bet they're not actually in the gap. They're actually right in the spiral arms in general. So I think there's very little star formation occurring within, between the spiral arms. Most of it is right in the arms, the vast majority of it. Yeah? Yeah, that's a good question. So what you're asking about, basically the process is called feedback, essentially. The star formation process itself, the action of forming stars is, help, is part of what helps destroy the environment in which they're forming. So there's the stars have winds, especially the massive stars gives off a lot of UV light and that can help break up the molecules in these clouds and it can help destroy basically the environment around them that they're forming in. So. But I don't think it can actually change the way you're asking it in terms of the mass right as they're starting to turn on. 
That feedback is a process that works on the core, the clumps basically over time. And as the clumps get, they start to form protostars and get more and more evolved from that point, there will be more and more feedback that will then continue to destroy the clump over time. So I don't think it, can, it can't really explain what's happening at the very, very beginning stage of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So this material, so we can actually see it. So it's, it's not like what astronomers would normally call dark matter. It's something that has essentially no electromagnetic signature, no light coming out from it whatsoever. And so because these things glow, uh, the dust grains glow at millimeter wavelengths, we can, we can see them. They're actually bright objects. You just got to look at the right, right part of the spectrum in order to see them. Um, the density is very low. In the center of that, that very first kidney bean-shaped clump that I showed you, or the one even that has the, the, the five filaments coming out, the starfish pattern, in the center regions of those clumps, the density is still better than the best vacuums that we can make here in a laboratory on the Earth. Okay? So it's very, very low density. right? It's not to the stage yet that's anything like the density of a planet or a star. It's extremely low densities. But that material is packed into a large space that's basically over a light year or two light years essentially in size. So there's lots of it. There's lots of material. That's how when you get that large volume, even at that low density, you can still build up to hundreds or even thousands of times the mass of the sun of material that's in that. And that stuff will eventually contract and collapse. So one of the things I did for my thesis uh, when I was first studying these kinds of objects is I wanted to know exactly what your question was. I wanted to know in the centers of these regions, especially the ones that didn't have stars in them, how dense were they actually in the center? And so that's what I did. I did modeling to try, of the observations to try to understand exactly that question and figure out what those numbers were, how dense they were. And the answer is, they're still better than any vacuum that we can actually make on the Earth, even at those very, very low densities. It, what we, and actually, people in this field call the things I'm talking about high density. So it's all relative, right? Yeah. Actually, they're disk, they're disk of the Milky Way galaxy. In one of these clouds that you see here, in the Milky Way, that density goes up on average by about a factor of 100. Okay, so the average density is about 100 hydrogen atoms in that tiny little volume. Okay, in one of these dense regions that I'm talking about, it goes up by yet another factor of about 100 to 1,000 in the centers of those regions. So it's still really low densities, but compared to the average density in the galaxy where there's only one hydrogen atom, but in one of these regions there's maybe like 100,000 hydrogen atoms, we call that dense, right? So it's all relative, yeah. 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 I'm very interested in, well, I dabble a little bit in astrophotography, but that is an amazing picture. And do you know any secrets behind this? I mean, what was... That's a great question. So I don't, okay, so exactly how did the photographer do this? Well, these are, so what this is, this is, this, these are clouds that are reflecting off of city lights off in the distance. Now, given the direction that this picture is taken, this is the direction towards the center of the galaxy. You can actually kind of start to pick out Sagittarius here. The center of the Milky Way galaxy, if you're familiar with the constellation of Sagittarius, here's the teapot. These four stars right here are the main part of the teapot. You can actually barely see the spout right there. It's all kind of lost in the glow of the Milky Way. The center of the galaxy is right off in this direction, sort of just off the spout of the, the teapot in that direction. So this has got to be facing, I assume because these are Joshua trees, this was either taken in California or Arizona. I'm guessing this is probably somewhere in the Mojave, maybe Joshua Tree National Park. And it seems like the laptop is thinking about it. All right, great. So um, 
Clearly, they had to set up a temporary light. This light could not have been on, I think, during the entire exposure. And so this was probably a quick flash or something that was very short term in order to light up the Joshua Tree. These lights are from cities off in the distance. I have no idea if this is facing south and you are at Joshua Tree National Park, I guess LA could be off to your right. So maybe that's what this is here. This is the Milky Way here, this big dark patch that you see here. This is mostly what we can see in the summertime. So this is stretching off now in the direction uh, towards the north, basically, as you go off in this direction. This is what's called the Great Rift that's right through here. So Cygnus should be over here in this direction somewhere, although I'm having a hard time picking it out. I guess maybe that's Vega up there, and maybe this is Deneb and part of Cygnus right in there. So this is the part of the Milky Way that you can see from the, the, the northern hemisphere, essentially, in the picture. From a very wide-angle camera, I don't know if this was actually stitched together, but my guess is it's from a very wide-angle lens, this particular photograph. And I don't really see a lot of motion in the stars, so it can't be a super, super long uh, exposure that was That's taken. Vegas on the left. Where at? Vegas? Oh, Vegas. Yeah. yeah, could be. That's right. If it's far all the way to the north, this is facing from north to south. So maybe that's, uh, yeah, lots of lights over there. That's for sure. Thank you.